You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Reading this evening comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 18. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for us for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will, allow, will tell you all about my activities. He is also a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent you him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is also called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you and does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that the Lord has received in the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for our brother Paul, in whom you have worked so mightily in centuries past. We're thankful for all of these brothers and sisters. Mentioned in this letter to the Colossians, we are thankful for the brothers and sisters here with us this evening in person and at home on Zoom. God, we pray that you would be with us now, that you would open our eyes and that our hearts would be yours. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to see a few more of, or a few more of you here tonight. My name is Nathan, if I haven't met you. Uh, as after a needed detour last week, I'm really glad to be wrapping up Colossians tonight. And then just as a heads up, as I mentioned, when we finished Exodus earlier this year, I think it will be just our new MO to take three or four or five weeks whenever we finish a book of the Bible together uh, to just spend a few weeks together in a few Psalms. So in the Lord's providence, Psalm 6 that we'll get to next week is just an incredibly appropriate Psalm. Uh, to speak to the moment that our country finds itself into today. So we'll have plenty more to 
think through slowly and process together next week. And uh, just in that vein, we, the pastors, have put together uh, and posted a blog post on our website. Uh, We'll share that on social media tonight, perhaps if you're at home. uh, Just hang out for a minute. Don't go search that and read that now, but maybe after we'll share it tonight, and hopefully there will be some helpful thoughts for you, some helpful resources to work through. Um, And before we get to next Sunday and get to some wider societal issues, can I just speak just for one minute, just uh, inwardly toward us this evening to encourage patience with one another, to encourage empathy and forbearance. Uh, There will likely be, and perhaps there already has been, a tendency towards um, going to polar extremes of dismissing Uh, the passionate social media posts of some of our church members because they might be, in your estimation, received or reactive or like mob-induced or something. You might be thinking, and as I've talked with some of you, like where was this activism 10 days ago? But then on the other end of the spectrum, there is the equal uh, tendency towards dismissal of how can you remain silent? How can you uh, remain silent in this? It is your silence that keeps the status quo. Neither extremes of this conversation are helpful because they both disdainfully judge motives of action or supposed inaction. But such is the brave new world that we are all living in of judging a person based on their digital or online persona. More on this next week, but this is why cultivating godly consciences and emphasizing Christian liberty is so important to patiently understand that every member or that not every member of our church will think feel, process, lament, or react in the exact same way that you do. Patience, forbearance. That's enough for this week. We'll get more to that uh, next week, and uh, perhaps the blog post that you'll find tonight might be helpful as well. Well, like we've said, and as as a reminder, there are a whole bunch of reasons that you might still choose to join us on Zoom Uh, for however long this period of transition keeps on. Some of you might choose to join us here in person from one week to the next. Uh, Some of you might join us every week on Zoom. But for those of us who are here, one thing that we won't necessarily miss uh, is, but, but perhaps the thing that we've all gotten used to is just that really awkward dismount of ending a Zoom meeting right? Like where everyone says, okay, bye, we'll see you next week or see you next Thursday or whatever. And then everybody like leans in and squints at the screen and looks for the end meeting button. And we're all doing that at the same time. I've heard somebody say it's like when you leave a restaurant and you give somebody a hug and say goodbye, and then you both walk then to your cars in the same direction at the parking lot. It's just a really awkward few seconds or a couple of minutes. Uh, well, it, seems, it some, seems sometimes tempting to think of the end of Paul's letters as equally awkward dismounts. Uh, even if they were helpful and useful for the original audience, the people that Paul was actually addressing and naming, uh, surely they're just a waste of time for us today, aren't they? Something that we can or would rather just do without. So let me just skim this section, kind of get a lay of the land of all these names, and then close the Bible and mark the checkbox that the Bible reading is done for today. But again, like I mentioned two weeks ago, that our God does not waste words, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting and training in righteousness, which includes everything that you just heard David read, and not just verses two through six that sound more spiritual, that sound more useful, but all of those names also. 
We're going to round out and finish up Colossians tonight, so let's just get right to it. We're going to think through chapter 4 in two sections this evening, that of furthering God's people and greeting God's people. So in verses 2 through 6, furthering God's people, transitioning to where Paul has just come from, where he gave at the second half of chapter 3, and then even in verse 1 of chapter 4, where he was giving household codes, expectations for what living in the household of God ought to look like as husbands and wives and children and parents and servants and masters. Now, Paul is going to once again congregationally address the whole church. It can be so tempting to think of just the relationships, just the immediate people and circumstances that are immediately in front of us that we can lose sight of the wider world beyond our walls, the wider kingdom of God beyond our church. So Paul's first command here to the Colossians is to continue steadfastly in prayer. He doesn't say what to be praying for, but just do it steadfastly. Now, one thing we might say, though, is steadfast prayer is not merely reactive prayer. It is not merely prayer in times of crisis or uncertainty where you need God's immediate uh, help or wisdom. Steadfast prayer is planned prayer. It is regular and it is proactive. It is times of individually and corporately meeting with God, speaking with God, dwelling with God, enjoying God. God. So setting setting aside regular times of prayer in your day, at a table with a cup of coffee, in the shower, while running the first car ride that you have of the day, perhaps taking time three or five times a day to say the Lord's Prayer. These are, whether it's journaling or not journaling, whatever it is, do it steadfastly. And this kind of prayer should then actually cultivate and produce, what does Paul say? He says it should produce watchfulness, watchful prayer, watchfulness in more opportunities and more reasons to actually pray. Watchfulness for the ways in which God is actually answering the prayers that we're praying. Watchfulness in, as Paul says in verse 2, watchfulness in thanksgiving becoming more and more aware of the overwhelming reasons for gratitude, which is the theme that we trace throughout chapter 3. But then in verse 3, at the same time, Paul says, pray, for all, pray also for us. And the us is all of the names that Paul is about to mention. And the reason for prayer is because they are imprisoned, at least a couple of them, along with Paul. Timothy, whom he mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1, and then Aristarchus, whom he calls here in chapter 4 his fellow prisoner. And then many others who are freely coming and going, delivering news and letters, like Paul's little email service to the Mediterranean world. There is a hub of people and activity surrounding Paul as he is in chains, which seemingly dispels the caricature of Paul that perhaps many modern folks have of him as like this dour, sour, no fun, worry wart, wart and like all ruiner of fun. He has an entire entourage of young men who long to be with him, who are sitting with him in and around his prison cell just to be with him, to learn from him, and to do and help and serve his ministry. And so Paul says, pray for us. Pray for all of us. Now, if you were imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, and you got to send like a once a month email to us, Christ Church, to pray for you, Like, what might you imagine 
that you would ask us to pray for. My guess is if I were imprisoned and I were writing to all of you, I would say, hey, Christchurch, remember to pray for like favor for me from the warden of the prison or from the prison guards, some official in charge who might let me out as soon as possible. Maybe even because I have good motivations for wanting to be released. I've got great plans for evangelism and discipleship and church planting. And all of these plans are now on a mandatory, perhaps temporary, but a mandatory hold because of my imprisonment. And so it looks like Paul might be asking for the same thing. He says in verse 3, pray also for us that God may open to us a door. Maybe he actually does have in mind what happened in a Philippian jail in Acts 16, where like a midnight earthquake might again happen here in this prison, likely where he is in Ephesus. A midnight uh, earthquake might happen and the prison doors might literally open to him. But that's not actually what Paul is asking that the Colossians would pray for. He says in verse 3, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. It's an open door for the freedom of the word, not an open door for the freedom of Paul to just go do and accomplish his own plans. He doesn't specify where he wants this word to go. He's fine and happy if instead of God uh, giving him favor with the guards that they would let him go, that God might keep him in chains so that those very guards might be the ones to hear and receive the gospel that he's preaching, which is exactly what Paul expressed thanksgiving for in Philippians 1, that in another imprisonment, the entire imperial guard is daily hearing the good news of Jesus Messiah and his fellow prisoners are growing in boldness in their speech about Jesus So what? Well, it's this. In in all of his letters, Paul never asks that others would pray for his circumstances to change. Nor does he pray in his many letters that the external circumstances surrounding those churches would change. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't pray for God to bring an end to violence? For God to remove the coronavirus? For God to heal Aunt Eunice? or to heal us even of our own ailing bodies, or that we would do well on a particular test or get the promotion that we're hoping for or whatever it is. No, we we actually can and should pray for those things. But even more, we should be praying for our deepening faith. We should be praying for our deepening trust in the goodness of God, in our transformation, for our transformation into the character of Jesus. And in in our increasing reliance upon the, upon the Spirit, no matter the circumstances. God does respond to the prayers of his people, but our primary prayer should be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Just remember what and how Paul told the Colossians that he was praying for them back in chapter 1. I'm sure he knew of many specific difficulties, specific hardships that they were experiencing, corporately and individually. But what does he pray for them in chapter 1? He says in verse 9, We have not ceased to pray for you. For what? That all of the things might get better and easier for you in your life? No, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. Again, not praying that their difficult circumstances would change, but that they would be sanctified through their difficult circumstances as they pick up and carry their own cross as they follow Jesus. Now, I feel like all I'm doing is qualifying here, but this doesn't mean that we are just stoics, that we are just sitting on our hands because the world is just going to be the way it is. We'll have more to think through here next week, but part of living as subjects within the kingdom of God and under King Jesus is that we begin to move forward, move toward injustice, that we begin to right wrong and advocate for justice, not just praying that some folks would be sanctified through their difficult circumstances. And so if your conscience is prompting you to peacefully march for reform, do that. Paul was almost just as prone to prophetically speak against division, against partiality, as he was, as he was likely tending towards praying for people's sanctification. We've already seen that throughout Colossians. So again, we are not Stoics. We advocate for change, but our primary prayers ought to be for sanctification, for growth, for deepening trust, for deepening life within the triune God. But back to chapter 4, Paul is asking, he is commanding the Colossians to remember that there, that there is much more beyond their small town of Colossae. The gospel is going out, and Paul wants more of it to go out. Paul is pleading with them to plead with God for more, for more opportunities, for more conversion, for more life in Christ, for more kingdom of God through the forgiveness of sins here on earth, for more repentance, for more worship, for more joy, for more God. So he's asking them, he's pleading with them to pray, to pray, to pray. So, Christ Church, pray for our church. Pray for more boldness and evangelistic opportunities for us as a community. But do not forget, continue steadfastly in prayer for all of those letters that Clint just prayed for. I was I was just thinking, man, wouldn't it be great if like in 10 years we have sent people of every letter of our alphabet all over the world and we are remembering them steadfastly in prayer. Pray for Guatemala. Pray for other friends and overseas workers that you personally know. Download the Unreached of the Day app from the Joshua Project and pray for people and for nations that you've never even heard of. Pray for the furthering of God's people. And not only that, live for the furthering of God's people. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And my goodness, are these two verses a needed encouragement for us all today? Now what Paul isn't saying here is to make the best use of your time, so go home tonight and like, spreadsheet out every hour of your work week. Like get out your calendars and use your time wisely. Though that might, may be entirely true. Like a spreadsheet uh, might be an embarrassing mirror for you to see how much time on social media or on Netflix you're actually using this week. 
But the word time here, making the best use of the time, isn't necessarily uh, hours or the, the, the spinning of the clock or something. The word time here, a better sense of that word, is more of a season or the age. Make, best, make the best use of this season or age that you are currently living in because the season of the kingdom is coming to a culmination. This in-between age of Christ might end at any moment, at the return of Christ. So make best use of the season of the age that has been given to you. And do this by walking wisely in view of outsiders. Don't give the observing world any reason to think ill of your church, any reason to think ill of your Christ. Let your conduct and your life make much of Christ and not less. And this isn't legalism. It's just chapters 2 and 3 of Colossians. As you received Christ, so walk in him. Having been buried with him, you have now been made alive in him. Put to death the things of the flesh. If you've been raised with him, seek the things that are above, and on and on and on. Your union in Christ isn't merely about your initial sanctif- or justification. You're being made right with God through the forgiveness of your sins, but it is about the total transformation of your entire being into the person of Jesus. You're being wrapped up into the triune life of God. And if that's the case, if in Christ you are now becoming the truest version of the self that God has created for you to be, then that ought to be unbelievably attractive. Our speech should be gracious, not defensive, accusatory, or dug in. It should be salty, flavorful, and preserving. The time, the age is ending soon. We don't know if it will be in 10 seconds or in 10,000 more years. But the eminence of Christ's return should now motivate our lives outward toward the furthering of God's people. The growth and inclusion of more of God's people. New people living and loving and speaking well because of the Christ who has saved and redeemed them. So, furthering God's people. But now comes the part that feels like the really awkward dismount. There are some names we've heard of. Many more names we haven't. And certainly, or surely, like this part has no relevance to my life at all. But it does. Verses 7 through the end, through verse 18. Now, greeting God's people. We, we know ne- next to nothing about Tychicus. Aren't you glad? That's not your name, or you didn't name your son Tychicus. Tychicus. Uh, but apparently, the Colossians didn't know him either. Paul has to say that he's like a really good dude. So, like, listen to him and be encouraged by him, he's telling the Colossians. But we do know about the guy who's with him, Onesimus, a slave who has become a Christian while being imprisoned with Paul. Again, an open door for the word to go out while being imprisoned. But Onesimus is from Colossae, and he had run away from his Christian master, Philemon. And now Tychicus is likely carrying the letter to Philemon as well. This is the book that we have in our Bibles of Philemon, Philemon, and this is why we know who Onesimus really is. And in that letter, Paul urges Philemon to receive his runaway servant now, not only with a compassionate forgiveness for running away, but he has since become a Christian. 
So now receive him, not just with forgiveness, but as a full brother into your household. And so the Colossian church has gathered here because they have heard that Paul has written them a letter and it's arrived in Colossae, and they're gathering here to heard it read aloud, and Tychicus and Onesimus are like over there standing in the corner or something as one of the Colossian uh, brothers is reading this letter out loud, and like, oh man, as, as this is being read, like Onesimus is over there. Like, what's going to happen after this letter is c- concluded, and like Onesimus is going to go over there, and like, what's he going to do when he gets his hands on his runaway slave? And then, Not only does Paul make mention of Onesimus by name, like that's crazy, he's just a servant, but then he says this in verse 9, and with him, with Tychicus, is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. He belongs and is one of you as a brother of the household of God. So perhaps the Colossians are thinking, oh, wow, Paul really is serious. He was, he's, he's now put some real flesh and bones on this theology that he was preaching to us back in chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul said, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is not academic or theoretical theology, but it has very real practical effects in how we love, in how we treat, in how we receive others, in our union together in Christ, through our together union, all together with Christ. So he's saying, receive him well. Receive him as one of you, as our brother. Then Paul sends greetings from others that apparently had some connection with the Colossians, three Jewish brothers, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice, Jesus who is called Justice. This is the only mention of Jesus Justice in the New Testament that we have. But Aristarchus is just briefly mentioned as Acts as he got swept up in the mob violence in Ephesus. But Mark is a different story though. Mark, we see in the book of Acts, Uh, with Paul has a pretty heavy falling out. You can read about that as they became friends and partners in the gospel in Acts 13, and then they're falling out in Acts 15. And Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, Paul's closest compatriot, actually split up. They decide they can no longer work together as missionary partners because of their disagreement over whether to keep Mark around. Paul apparently didn't think much of Mark because he had previously abandoned them. So he likely was thinking of Mark as somewhat of a coward or something. Perhaps he wasn't actually believing and trusting in the gospel fully, perhaps was Paul's concern. But we don't know how many years have passed now, but they are now evidently reconciled. Paul, being a guy of grace, of compassion, of forgiveness, and of love, has reconciled and received Mark as one of his own. And just to make sure Mark's reputation isn't well-known and doesn't disqualify him amongst the Colossians, Paul says, if he comes to you, welcome him. He doesn't have plans to send uh, Mark up to Colossae, but if he comes, receive him well. In the event that Mark is ever up in Colossae, Paul is working hard to establish him and establish his ministry of the kingdom. And these three guys are the only Jewish guys around Paul. 
And he points that out, not to say that they are like the varsity. They are the voices of authority. In case Aristarchus or Jesus Justice or Mark ever comes around, like these are the legit guys with authoritative uh, words for you. No, he does the exact opposite. Remember, this letter was partially written to break down the walls of division between Jews and Gentiles in the Colossian church. And so Paul is saying, yeah, there are three Jewish guys here, but just as equal among my little team are these Gentile dudes too. While there is actually real ethnic distinction amongst these brothers, Paul is not saying, like, I'm just colorblind. I I just see them as just a human being. That's all I see. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this team of Delta Force church planters These Delta Force missionaries, they are all made up of people of different ethnicities, of different tribes. And how amazing is that? The gospel promise to Abraham is coming true. That Yahweh is now the covenant God of people from all nations. And he is working through people of all nations to all nations. Incredible. And so, verse 12 Epaphras, or Epaphras, who is one of you, he is a Colossian, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you also. He is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. This Epaphras, a Gentile Colossian, what an example he is to all of you and to us, struggling in prayer for his people, wrestling like Jacob with God unwilling to let go of God until God has blessed his people. Not him, but the Colossian church, his people, wrestling on their behalf with God. And Paul commends him for his hard work in the gospel, this Gentile Colossian. For him, verse 13, I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then he gives greetings from Luke, the beloved physician, And from Demas, this is the only place in the Bible that we learn that Luke is a doctor. Luke, of course, is the writer of Luke and Acts. He's a traveling partner with Paul. And one note about Luke that I think is important for us to know is that today's doctors are among society's uh, upper class, perhaps. They are perhaps some of the most well-paid people in our culture. But not so in the first century. Not so in Greco-Roman culture. The majority of physicians were slaves. Very few upper-class folks would defile themselves with working with the sick. So aristocratic masters might see uh, some of their servants as like an investment. If I can pay to have him trained as a physician, then I can use him in the city to actually make me money. And so it's perhaps, it perhaps shouldn't come as a surprise that Luke's gospel especially seems to highlight and emphasize Jesus' ministry toward outsiders, toward the marginalized. And one more thing about Luke being here is that Paul has two of the four gospel writers here with him in prison. And at least one of them for much, if not most, of his entire missionary ministry. This should absolutely detonate the mistaken idea that the message or the gospel of Paul is somehow at odds with the message or the gospel of Jesus. The reason that we know of the message and gospel of Jesus is from these two of these four brothers who have actually written down the gospel accounts, who are with Paul and learning from his ministry. 
Jesus and his delegated apostle Paul are in complete harmony and unity. And while Mark being here is really encouraging for us, Demas being here is equally discouraging. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul breaks the news to Timothy that their mutual friend, their mutual co-laborer in the gospel has now left. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says about Demas, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. So the presence of Mark here at the end of Colossians, the presence of Mark here in prison with Paul encourages us that there is no sin too great. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. There is no person too weak for God to redeem and transform. It is the power of God to save, not our courage, not our righteousness. But the presence of Demas encourages us not to presume upon the grace of God. As others have said about the apostle Judas, who abandoned and betrayed Jesus, Demas, we might also say, had a fuller and better seminary education than we could have ever hoped and paid for. Right at Paul's side, learning from, gleaning from, even being a part of perhaps the creation of these letters. And in the end, he walked away from Christ because of his greater love for the world. Instead, for all of us, being pressed down in humility to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to know him as we sung earlier, not just to know about him, about the power of the resurrection. May we all individually and corporately take on the mantle of John the Baptist of I must decrease and he must increase, forgetting what is behind and straining forward toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May that mark our lives. Do not presume upon the gospel of grace as perhaps Demas has. And then Paul tells the Colossians to greet the Laodiceans. Laodicea is a neighboring town. We're not quite sure what this letter is that he's talking about here at the end of Colossians. It's possible, if not likely, that Paul wrote a letter to them as well in showing that Paul intended for these letters that he was writing to individual churches to then be copied, to then be shared, to then be circulated and read. He wants the Colossian letter to be read at Laodicea, and he wants the Laodicean letter to be read at Colossae. But wait, what? Like, huh? Where's Laodiceans in the Bible? Like, why don't we have that letter in the New Testament? I don't know. In 1 Corinthians, Paul referred to an earlier letter that he had written to the Corinthians. So our 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul refers back to another severe letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. So our 2 Corinthians is actually 3 no. Our 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and then there's a 3 Corinthians, and then our 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. Does that make sense? That's weird. Uh, is this a problem? Is this a problem? If we found 1 and 3 Corinthians, or if we found Laodiceans today, would we include them in the Bible? Uh, short answer, no. We don't just believe in the inspiration of the writing of the New Testament letters, but we believe in the providence of God to protect, to preserve, and then canonize these letters together as the full and comprehensive word of God. 
We can actually have much greater faith in the authenticity of hundreds of scrolls and scraps of scrolls that were found, that have been found all over the Mediterranean world than if we were to maybe find one scroll in the desert somewhere today that was addressed to the Laodiceans. Like, is that scroll that we found today actually original to Paul? I don't know. How do you even know? Nor would we say that everything that Paul wrote is the inspired and authoritative word of God. Does that, does that sound weird? It's not. Everything that Paul ever wrote is not the inspired and authoritative word of God. Like, if we found a scribbled shopping list in the desert somewhere, dear Paul, Remember, when you go to the grocery store today to get bread, milk, eggs, and Oreos, like if we found that note from Paul to himself, that would not be the Bible. We would not include that in the Bible. If we did, if we included Paul's shopping list or 3 Corinthians or Laodiceans, we would be saying that God would have deprived 2,000 years worth of worldwide Christians of Scripture that they needed for life and godliness. So what's the Laodicean letter? I don't know. Would it be interesting if we found it someday? Sure. Am I losing one minute of sleep that we don't have it today? Not at all. So let's close this out. Unfortunately, we don't know anything about Archippus and the ministry he had uh, that Paul was encouraging him to fulfill. Bummer, we don't know anything about Nympha and her um, household, the, the church that she was likely hosting at Laodicea. Bummer. But then Paul signs off, written with his own hand. Presumably, he had dictated the rest of this letter to one of the other guys who wrote, but now to validate his letter, to communicate his personal affection for the Colossians, he reminds them to remember his chains, as he writes in his own hand, to pray for him. And then he offers a benediction, a final good word, a blessing for them. Grace be with you. The undeserved kindness of God in Christ through the Spirit, may that be with you, both past and present, may it be with you, now and always. Perhaps Paul is even thinking that this letter itself might be a means of God's grace to them today. Colossians has certainly been a means of God's grace to me throughout my life, and certainly even more, and particularly over the past 10 weeks. Maybe this week, go home and read this entire letter again several more times, that it might really settle and then harden into your soul. Simultaneously this week, begin praying, begin reading, begin living Psalm 6 as we move toward that on Sunday. hope this has been a good 10 weeks for us all in this letter. Keep reading it. May it transform us for a lifetime. Let's pray. Oh God, might we be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus, fully pleasing to him. We pray that you would cause us to bear fruit in every good work and that we might increase in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. May this be so. You are our King, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we live under your caring and gentle hand. Dwell with us this week. Cause us to know you more. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, patience, forbearance, 
In the name of Christ our King, we pray all of these things for your sake, King Jesus, and for our own peace and good. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.